0: Hi, I'm Jane Howdy-Shell from Bye Bye Birdie. Obviously, you're a fan of the work of the American Theatre Wing, so I want to make sure you know all about their newest project, In the Wings. In the Wings is a new series of short videos about all of the people who work backstage at the theater. Dressers, dance captains, dialect coaches, even animal trainers, and so many more. It showcases all of those great talents who never make it into the spotlight, but may be deciding where that spotlight should land. You can find a new video every two weeks at AmericanTheaterWing.org or by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. Look for In the Wings on the American Theater Wing.org, And now, let's listen to this week's Downstage Center. Shh, it's starting. He made an indelible mark in Chicago, on Broadway, and now around the world with the epic play August, Osage County, and he's poised to repeat that success with a very different play, Superior Donuts, which is now in New York at the Music Box Theater. Before this Broadway duo, he electrified off-Broadway audiences with Killer Joe and Bug, and in Chicago, explored man's spiritual connection to the world in Man from Nebraska. In addition, as a member of the esteemed Steppenwolf Theater Company, he has acted in a number of productions and soon will be seen there in American Buffalo, which will also play at the McCarter Theater in New Jersey. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm pleased to meet and to welcome Tracy Letts.
1: Hi, Tracy. Hi, Howard. Thanks for having me. You were saying just
0: before we went on the air that you are trooping through interviews here in New York. And is that a new experience in the sense that when you're in Chicago, you've been in the Steppenwolf Company for years. They know who you are now, but you're still a somewhat unknown quantity to to New York.
1: Yeah, I've done them uh, not only in Chicago but when shows have traveled elsewhere. But New York, there's just so much media in this city Uh, and certainly with all of the uh, online publications. And uh, there's just – you find yourself talking an awful lot. Uh, It can give one the impression that uh, you're more important than you actually are. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, you have won a few prizes for Osage County and and certainly that that makes one important in the world of theater. So I suppose, yeah. so we we start this interview accepting that we believe you are important <laughs> okay, and great. what you have to say <laughs> is is valid. Um what's fascinating with when Superior Donuts was coming in, um there were a, there was a lot of point made about the fact that it was different from Osage County. That it was it was a different kind of work. It was a different scale of work. And I'm wondering, did you set out to write something that was profoundly different, or is it simply where you went?
1: Yeah, to say that I set out to do it uh, presupposes a plan that I've put in motion, and I, I've never really worked with a plan. I I have an impulse. To, to mix it up. When I finish one thing, I w- the next thing I work on, I want to be different. Uh, I, I want to challenge myself in different ways. I want to explore different things whether it's writing or acting. I, 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 even as an actor, I wouldn't want to go necessarily from acting in a Tennessee Williams play to acting in another Tennessee Williams play though I've loved doing Tennessee Williams. Uh, so I think the impulse is simply to do something in a different vein. Truth is, I never had any expectation that Superior Donuts was a play that was going to travel. Yeah. At Steppenwolf, we often uh, concern ourselves solely with the patch of grass we're working on and don't sort of worry about it beyond that. Uh, and Donuts was a uh, uh, was conceived as a as a oh, a kind, of, a kind of tribute to my hometown or not even a tribute, just, just an exploration of my adopted city. I've been there over 20 years and all of my plays have been set, and prior to Donuts, all of the plays have been set uh, in the Plains. And uh, I decided I wanted to write about my hometown for a change. I've lived there long enough I, I, I felt I could and I wanted to. So uh, the thought was always it was just going to play uh, in Chicago. I was surprised. Uh, I think, you know, Primarily, uh, of course, on the basis of the success of August Osage County, New York producers took immediate interest in donuts. And then on top of that, it turned out to be a very popular show in Chicago. The Chicago audiences loved it. The question remained, is it universal? Will it translate? Will Broadway audiences go for it the same way that Chicago audiences did?
0: Did you do any work on the play between Chicago and New York, especially if you felt you'd written a particularly Chicago-centric play? I did a lot of
1: work. Uh, Osage moved from Chicago to New York uh, with about six weeks and I, I did some serious rewriting of Osage in that six-week period. But with donuts, I had over a year. Hmm. Also, donuts frankly had been uh, thrown up a bit in Chicago. Uh, it wasn't quite uh, as polished as I would have liked at the time. Uh I had written the first act of Donuts and then August became a great big hit and became a huge distraction in my life. At the same time, my father became ill Mm. and I got pulled away from Donuts for a long time before I was able to get back to it. Uh, I tried to get out of it. I tried to get out of doing it at the theater and Martha Levy, the artistic director, wouldn't let me out of it and and I think not – for purely uh, mercenary reasons either. I think she felt that it, it would be a good thing in my life to continue to work on the play. And I think she was probably right. So uh, I think some, don- uh, some some Band-Aids were put on Superior Donuts uh, in its original production. Uh, and in fact, one of the ways we, we did work on it after the initial production, we, about 10, 12 weeks ago, we had a workshop in Chicago that, in which we brought the entire cast in and we worked for a full two weeks just table work just me working on the script and I was transported back to that time when I had been working on it in its original production and I, I turned to Tina at one point and said I don't know how I did this I don't know how given the, the, what I had just gone through with my father given the, the I mean I missed rehearsals to come collect the Pulitzer I missed rehearsals to come get the Tony Award it was a crazy time and I, anybody will tell you writing a new play, especially a new comedy, is very hard. Uh, and I couldn't really remember how I did it. And Tina said, "Well, I'll tell you how you did it. You you put some band aids on it, and now you're taking the band aids off. And now's the time to take them off and to really try and re- repair uh, some structural uh, issues with the play, which I think we did in mm-hmm. in that workshop, and then continued to work on it uh, once we got into rehearsal here in New York. So yeah, it." The short answer to your question is it changed substantially from the Chicago run, having nothing to do with uh, the Chicago to New York element. Mm-hmm. And was it – is it the
0: entire same company that did it in Chicago or are there different actors here? To a person.
1: In? It's every single person we had in Chicago, which is remarkable. It's hard mm-hmm. to do. It's, it's hard simply to keep those people together. Life happens uh, – and uh, people get pulled in different directions. But also, uh, there are certain economic realities uh, in New York, especially on Broadway. And uh, uh, to, to bring a cast of Chicago actors is uh, in defiance uh, of some of those realities. Uh, but I think, again, August had helped us at Steppenwolf sort of pave the way for that. We, we were able to, to put up a show that really defied – a lot of expectations about that kind of thing in that uh, the length of the play was three and a half hours long and 13 actors that really nobody in New York had ever heard of.
0: Interestingly, I'd heard from many sources that when you were bringing in August Osage County, the company really had to wrestle with whether or not they wanted
1: to go to New York. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? But uh, I mean, In hindsight, <laughs> it's unimaginable, yeah. but – it's crazy and I think it's been blown out of proportion a little bit truth is I don't think those people would have been denied but you know we have a strange relationship with New York in Chicago in Chicago theater we, we've we've suffered from a kind of uh, second city well the name alone uh, it sort of hangs over our heads and it but the 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 actors I know and and have spent the last 20 years with in Chicago, they live in Chicago because they want to, because they choose to, not because they have to, not because they've been relegated to the minor leagues. It's not how anybody in Chicago feels about it. Uh, and so there's a kind of chip on the shoulder about coming to New York, about uh, – New York is not the Emerald City. We don't have to go to New York in order to prove ourselves. Uh at the same time, Broadway is a kind of emerald city. There's no denying it if for no other reason than, than people from all over the world come to Broadway in a way we wish they did in Chicago uh, and in a way they're starting to but not quite. And so th- there is a feeling, a strong feeling of our, of our company that we – I suppose once the chip on the shoulder, once we were able to sort of knock that off, what you're left with is we want to share our work. We want to go to New York to show people what we're doing in Chicago and what we've been doing in this damn theater company for 30 years. That, in fact, this sort of grand experiment uh, of a company that you put some really good actors in a room and leave them there for 30 years and see what happens when you come back, that 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 has had a, a fruition in our ensemble that paid off handsomely with August Osage County. Well, it's interesting from the perspective of an East Coast person.
0: There have been this is this is a renaissance of Steppenwolf in New York because certainly Steppenwolf burst on the scene in the mid '80s with a series of productions that were highly acclaimed, notably um, the the True West and uh, Bomb and Gilead, right. which which were so extraordinary. Extraordinary, and then. It faded down for a little bit. There were a few productions that came in that didn't land in the same way, but now
1: it's welcome home Steppenwolf, <laughs> right? Right, no, and we, you know, the company has changed a lot in in that. Uh, we we talked to so many people who had beautiful memories of Ballman Gilead and True West, but. Is twenty some odd years ago, and the company is very different now. Uh, not only in terms of membership, but those company members twenty years ago are twenty years older and have twenty more years of age and experience on their side. So we were very excited to bring Osage as an example of who we are now. We're also, uh, I, I mean, the the. The addition uh, of me uh, to the company is interesting in that there there haven't really been – there have been a couple of ensemble members who have written. uh, Frank Galati uh, as an adapter primarily. uh, Tina writes. uh, Austin Pendleton writes. But there – I think even they would say there hasn't really been a playwright writing for the company Hmm. and uh, with – August, that was an example, as well as man from Nebraska before. That was an example of me writing specifically for our company, something that, uh, something that seemed to be uh, – well, uh, that our company would do particularly well. When you say writing for your company, do you mean simply
0: to be done at Steppenwolf or do you mean writing for specific members of the company? Well, I mean something
1: in between. Okay. Uh, so writing for something to be done at the company – and to be done by members of the company, though maybe not specific members of the company. I mean, August Osage County, let's face it, is, for the most part, old white people. And uh, uh, we got a lot of them at Steppenwolf. <laughs> uh, our company has been comprised of old white people for a long time. now. We've been in the process in the last few years of trying to uh, bring some youth and some racial diversity into our company. And I'm, I'm very glad of that. It's a long time coming. Uh, but uh, August, because it was a family drama uh, about a big old white family, was uh, particularly well-suited to the strengths of our company. Mm-hmm. Not, not only just because of the demographic but also because of a certain uh, – well, we're all for the mo- – not all, but we're mainly Midwestern people in that ensemble. And so there's something about uh, the Midwestern ethos that uh, people seem to understand innately in our ensemble.
0: In Superior Donuts, is the entire company members
1: of the Steppenwolf Company? At no, same only three members of the acting company are members of the ensemble, but there are three newer members – uh, John Michael Hill, James Vincent Meredith, and Yassin Pankoff, who uh, Yasin I believe, is the oldest member. I mean, he's been a company member the longest, and he was added to the company in the same year I was, 2002. Hmm. Tina Landau uh, was added to the company, I think, well, late 90s anyway. Hmm. And then I myself was added in 2002. So we're actually a bit of a younger representation but, you know, there's always a little dance, Howard, that's danced around uh, casting a show at Steppenwolf with 42 ensemble members, uh, not to mention directors who uh, quite often usually come from the ensemble and have the final say as to who's cast. There's always a bit of a, uh, bit of a match game that goes on in terms of finding the available ensemble member who's right for the part who the director wants to work with and roll. Hmm. role.
0: On these programs, I'm usually almost pedantically chronological, but since you've brought it up, tell me about how you were tapped to become a member of the ensemble, uh, of, the, of the the company itself, because you know, it, it seems sort of organic when I've heard people talk about it. And in some ways, I can't help but wonder if it's not like a secret society and somebody comes up and taps you on the shoulder and says, come in the other room, we want to talk to you.
1: Well... It's not really a secret society. I will tell you that when when they added me, I kept waiting for some kind of ceremony, some kind of something. Uh, uh, The secret handshake? (laughs) The secret handshake, the decoder ring, even just sort of a a mimeographed sheet with rules and responsibilities. There's nothing. They give you nothing. They tell you you're a member of the company. And you go on the website and that's it. (laughs) There you are. I uh, moved to Chicago in my early 20s, uh, in the mid 80s. I auditioned for every theater in town, couldn't get arrested, left town, uh, came back, uh, and then the first play I was ever cast in at Steppenwolf was The Glass Menagerie for their educational outreach series. I played Tom. The show was directed by Francis Guinan, who played Uncle Charlie in August, Osage County. Uh, Then uh, that was 88, and then over. Many years i oh i understudied i uh, I got thrown on stage in a sort of terrible set of circumstances where an actor lost his voice and I got thrown on in the first preview with the book in my hand and in in a uh, uh, well, uh, I had a variety of experiences with the members of the company over a number of years. I did a production of Picasso with the Le Panagile, the very first production of that play. Uh, that started at Steppenwolf, and I wound up doing 468 performances as Freddie the bartender in that play, both at Steppenwolf and then in the subsequent transfer to the Westwood Playhouse, now the Geffen Playhouse in Los Angeles. So I'd had a number of uh, – years and experience with the company before i was uh in 98 i uh, was called uh, back uh i was in los angeles at the time but they asked me to come and do a production of three days of rain that anna shapiro directed i had known from days in fringe theater in chicago and uh she directed amy morton and jan barford were the other two actors in that production that was 98 and then uh In 2001, uh, I think it was 2001, oh, I had a relationship in Los Angeles that was ending and I was – I kind of didn't know where – I knew I didn't want to be in Los Angeles anymore. I was a bit lost and I knew that Amy Morton was directing a production of Glengarry Glenn Ross, the theater. She was at the time in New York appearing in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and I made a trip to New York to look at her face to face and say, I I think I need that job. Will you cast Hmm. me in that show? And she did. She cast me as Williamson in Glengarry. I had done a production uh, off-loop, as we call it in Chicago, directed by Anna years before. It was a terrific production. I stuck around in Chicago to do a couple of other shows at the theater, uh, The Dazzle by Richard Greenberg... And uh, Homebody s- Cobble, yes. uh, homebody. The Correction of the Dresser. I under- well, after Homebody, I think is when they – or it was around the time we were starting rehearsals on Homebody, somewhere in there. That's when they asked me to join the ensemble, mm-hmm. knowing that I didn't really have my, my roots – I hadn't replanted my roots anywhere. And so uh, Dr. Levy, the artistic director, came to me and said, we, she didn't make it uh, – it wasn't conditional. But the, still, there was an implication that it would it would go down better if you moved to Chicago because we could sure use some in-town people. Uh-huh. I said, sure, I'd love to move back. So they added me to the company. I moved back. And yeah, the, from then on, from about 2002 until 2007 at Steppenwolf, for that period of five years or so, I, I seemed to do a lot of plays uh-huh. uh, at the theater, two or three a year it seemed like. Well, let's cycle back
0: to – the beginnings of your career and, and your background, both of your parents were English professors mm-hmm. uh, in Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, were they specifically, either of them teaching theater? Was theater specifically part of of your life in Oklahoma?
1: They didn't teach theater, but my both of my parents were always uh, very interested in the arts and culture and books and movies, and uh, that was uh, a very important part of family life. Uh, and my father was an actor. My father had been an actor in high school and community theater. I have a photograph of my father playing grandpa, and you can't take it with you, uh, in high school. Uh, and uh, he had continued to sort of keep his hand in in community theater, to college productions. I uh, The first play I really remember seeing was a university production of To Kill a Mockingbird with my father playing Atticus. Hmm. And uh, he, he maintained his interest in theater for a long time until finally the first play I was cast in was at a community theater in Tishomingo, Oklahoma, a production of The Solid Gold Cadillac. My father was in the show. So my first play was with my dad. Uh, And then I continued to do community theater, high school theater, although my high school was so small we didn't really have a theater department to speak of. Uh, A brief little stop uh, at uh, the university where my parents taught where I did a couple of shows. Uh, The first time I ever remember being any good – was in a production of Skin of Our Teeth, a community theater production of Skin of Our Teeth that my father directed. So uh, although they didn't teach theater, uh, Dad was always very active in the theater, and certainly his interest in acting, uh, ha- I'm sure, had a lot to do with me becoming an actor. Then when I was 17 or 18, I, I-, I started going down to Dallas. I-, I grew up in a little town about 100 miles north of Dallas, a town called Durant, Oklahoma. And I started going down to Dallas for auditions, My father took an interest in it, started going down to Dallas to audition himself and made perhaps 40 movies, Hmm. 40 movies and TV shows. Dad had a kind of second career as a character actor in film and television. So we always had that in common. So I I think that's one of the reasons uh, I, I developed such an interest in theater. It's also one of the reasons I got the hell out of that part of the country because there's not a lot going on in terms of the theater.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say you went to audition and your dad went along was was there competition in the sense that you were both looking for the same thing at the same time but different points in your lives?
1: Uh you know as an 18-year-old I might have felt that I don't looking back on it now. I mean dad certainly didn't. Uh dad dad was a school teacher who had uh, grown weary of university politics. Uh small-time mm. university politics. And my dad was looking for a way out. Mm. He took early retirement and, and as I say, enjoyed a, actually a much more lucrative career as a character actor. And it's
0: interesting that both of your parents essentially created second careers for themselves yeah. because your mom also, only after retirement, really began writing
1: novels. Yeah. I always remember mom writing. She uh, She had an interest in screenplays for a long time. And She got danced around by a lot of companies who pretended they were going to make her movies. Being in a small town in Oklahoma, it's hard to get movies made. Uh, She eventually turned to short stories and then from there she turned to novels and that's when uh, Where the Heart Is became an Oprah book club selection. And it was only then that she retired from teaching school. She had actually written those while she was still – uh, a school teacher. Huh. But yeah, uh, turned into a great second career for her as well. Hmm. So as you say,
0: um, you were looking for more work than Dallas had to offer. That's when you headed for Chicago?
1: Yeah. I followed a, a girlfriend up to Chicago. She uh, uh, was probably trying to get away from me, but I, I followed her up to <laughs> so Chicago. You, you were stalking a girlfriend to Chicago. <laughs> and. Uh, We broke up, but I fell in love with the city. The city was exactly what I had been looking for. Uh, I was scared of New York. I was scared of Los Angeles. I was scared of uh, coming from a small town in Oklahoma. Those options scared me. I did not have a university education. Uh, And considering school at the time, they were very expensive, and my parents couldn't afford to take me, and my grades weren't that great. Uh, So... uh, I just went straight into the business. I was out there at 17 with my little headshot and resume trying to get acting work. Huh. First in Dallas and then a couple of years later, I guess I moved to Chicago when I was 20 years old. So at 20 years old, you're in
0: Chicago, no formal acting training, no university degree of any kind. Right. What did you meet with in those days? <laughs> how did – I mean how, how did you even get yourself
1: seen? Well, that's the great thing about Chicago. You, you, uh, it's not that big a, a community. It's, there are, I don't know, 200 or something theaters in Chicago producing. So th- there are a lot of theaters. Uh, but still, it's a, it is a small community. It's not so cliquish that you can't be seen. I, I think Brian Dennehy was the person who said about Chicago, you'll never get rich, but you will always have work. And it's always been true, uh, as long as I've been acquainted with the city and and young actors coming to the city, it's always been true that you can get on stage in Chicago. Hmm. If you're an actor, you can find your way on stage. And if you're a playwright, you can get your play produced. Always that's been the case. Hmm. That's why it was such a good fit for me. And I just felt – I felt at home. I felt a community that I had never felt anywhere, that I I had always felt – uh, like an outsider in uh, in my small town uh, i I hated Dallas, uh, but Chicago was kind of the perfect fit for me and yet it was it 's still a midwestern city it, it, it still felt there was something about it that was still recognizable
0: to me so what kind of work were you getting in those days?
1: Well, uh, the Steppenwolf show, the Glass Menagerie. I mean,
0: that was that was really right when you the got the to Chicago. That was out of the box. Oh, I yeah. didn't realize that.
1: Yeah, I mean, Steppenwolf, uh, it's it's not such a such an imposing tower that you can't get in there. If you're if you're a young actor, you'll be seen at Steppenwolf. You know, you you will be seen. You will be considered. And if you're mm-hmm. any good, you'll probably get on stage. So what strikes me then is I noticed
0: that you started doing episodic TV. You would appear in this or that every so often. So so where did the whole Los Angeles thing come from?
1: Los Angeles started when I went out there with Picasso at La Lepanaggio with mm-hmm. Steppenwolf. Uh, that would have been about 95, 96. And then I came back to Chicago, did a couple of plays, and then went back to Los Angeles full time in 97. hmm so I was out there from ninety seven to two thousand and one, and yeah, I booked some, oh, Seinfeld, most famously Seinfeld, because I'm in the uh, the Festivus episode of Seinfeld. Uh, Seinfeld, Drew Carey show, Home Improvement, uh, uh, some some hour long episodics to uh, the district, and you know this other TV stuff.
0: And were you looking at doing theater? In Los Angeles, I mean we know it's – there's a rift between the big companies and, and the small companies out there, but, but was it really just television work?
1: For me, yeah. I don't know why, but uh, I think there is theater work out there for people who really go looking for it. But for some reason for me, it just wasn't what I was looking for. Uh, I think I was probably kind of playing the lottery and trying to make a big strike. Mm-hmm. I think I was trying to f- sort of find a big strike because I was broke. I was always broke. Uh, and uh, in L.A., uh, you know people who are out there one day and they're broke-ass actors, and then the next day they're, uh, they they land a, a part on a series, and suddenly they've got serious money. And I think at the time that that was important to me. It was important to me for a while. I also suffered a, a personal. Tragedy. While I was out there, my my partner of seven years at the time, we moved out together in uh, ninety late ninety seven, and she died in January of ninety eight. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd been together for a long time. We'd lived together, and it was a uh, well. It was a tough time for me. I was I was a little lost, and I don't necessarily. Uh, I don't I don't know that I had a very clear idea. Well, I never have a clear idea of what the hell I'm doing. I know that there came a point. In 2001, when I left to do that Glengarry Glenn Ross in Chicago, I had a couple of buddies who booked an episode of uh, a TV show called VIP with Pamela Anderson. Uh, this was a syndicated, syn- syndicated yeah. show, but it was very popular internationally. So the residuals on this thing, you got residuals from all over the world, and they were pretty sweet. And both these guys booked this thing. They booked the same episode of this thing, and I remember thinking – damn it, I wish I had booked that VIP. I really could have used that money. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was literally driving out of town and got about 60 miles outside of the the city limits of Los Angeles when something clicked in my head. and I said, VIP, what happened? It was never supposed to be about this. It was never – that was not why I got into this business. How did I get sucked into this kind of – this?" This poverty mentality of thinking, if I just get that one strike, I can make some money. In your Tony speech, you
0: said, "Boy, this sure beats auditioning for Jack." Man, does whether, it.
1: whether you should have said that on a CBS
0: <laughs> show or not, I'm not so sure. But it was a, Which it was is, a great comment. You know, I,
1: I uh, Keith Carradine of all people—he's uh, the father of Martha Plimpton, who's a member of our ensemble—and he came up to me immediately after the Tonys, and he said. I've been on that JAG audition. That's terrible, man. I mean, every actor who's ever auditioned for JAG knew exactly what I was talking about. You had to take this terrible drive out to Long Beach, and the producer of that show was this cigar-chomping right-winger. It was just – it was terrible. And you, you would tell a friend, I've got an audition tomorrow for JAG, and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry, man, because you had to go. You couldn't not go. So since we've
0: not been sticking to a strict chronology, even this trip to L.A., um, and you're having started to work with Steppenwolf, you began to write. Now, when did you start writing? We know that it was 93 when Killer Joe had its first production out in Evanston, but when, when did you get the idea that you could also be a writer?
1: You know... The writing and the acting in some ways, Howard, are sort of – they're two parts of me and they've almost kind of been on side-by-side tracks in my life and I've never really mixed them up too much. I've never acted in anything I've written. I've never had any desire to. Hmm. Uh, I – Look, when you're a pedestrian, all the drivers are out to get you. And when you're a driver, uh, get those people out from in front of my car. And that's how I feel as an actor and writer. In some ways, they actually don't agree with each – they inform each other. But as career tracks, they don't agree with each other. Uh, Killer Joe was the first thing I wrote when I was, I don't know, 25, 26. And I was an out-of-work actor in Chicago and I – I had written my whole life – as a little kid, I I, I wrote stories. I I was always more attracted to uh, the word than visuals. I've read many
0: interviews where you cite a cheery story you wrote about age eight called The Psychopath. Yes.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yes. So (laughs) I I had this idea for this kind of – pulpy sort of uh, pulpy country noir kind of story and I thought I'm going to write this and I'm going to write it in a real down and dirty way and I'm going to write it for uh, five young actors and it, we're going to be able to do it someplace on the cheap which is exactly what happened. And the play far exceeded my expectations. That. Every play I've written has far exceeded my expectations for it. I thought we were going to run for four weeks in a little theater at the Noise Cultural Arts Center in Evanston and close. I wrote the thing actually in 90, and it took me three years to get the thing produced. I told you earlier, you can always get a play produced in Chicago. It's particularly hard to get Killer Joe produced. It's a strong cup of coffee, and it, it scared some people off. Eventually, I found a good situation for the play, and uh, the, the play uh, premiered there, August of 93, and was critically slammed by everybody except for Richard Christensen of the Chicago Tribune, who championed the play. And he had a little column at the time where he would put his, I don't know what they call it, picks and pans or raves section or whatever, and he would put Killer Joe in there. But because it was such a strong cup of coffee, he would put after he listed Killer Joe in parentheses after it, he would write uh, – Contains nudity and violence. So, of course, we were sold out every show as a result.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Christensen. Yes.
1: We ran for eight months there at the next lab, hmm. as it was called. Uh, and during that time... Uh, we, meaning myself, the actors, and the director Wilson Milam, we raised the money to take the show to the Edinburgh Festival. We uh, met a young woman who had a, an inn at the Traverse Theatre in at uh, in, uh, the Edinburgh Festival. The regular festival or the Fringe? The Fringe. Okay. Little did we know that the Fringe, uh, that the Traverse is the best venue at the Fringe. Mm-hmm. We we just got very lucky. We wound up at the Traverse and it was, the run turned into kind of a big deal. I mean, the the, the newspapers in England made a, uh, and Scotland made a big deal out of the play. And uh, there was a, a bit of a competition. Theaters in London who wanted to bring Killer Joe to their, th- our production of Killer Joe to their theater. Eventually the Bush Theater, uh, which is known as a, a sort of center for new writing in London, always has been. They brought us uh, in to do a run there at the Bush Theater. From there, Michael Codron, venerable producer of Pinter and Stoppard, and he uh, took the show and moved it to the West End. So our original little five-member cast, uh, w- working in a forty-seat schoolroom in Evanston, found themselves playing the West End for hmm. four months, and then leaving the West End, returning home to literally drive cabs, wait tables. Uh,
0: <laughs> but if I have the chronology right and I'm, I'm working off the published edition of the play, by ni- in 94, there was a production
1: in New York. There was. At the 29th Street Rep, uh, uh, the – I don't know if he was the artistic director at the time, a fellow named David Magentel who uh, – ran or partially ran or was the literary manager. I can't remember Mm -hmm. what his official designation was. He had read a review of the play and he asked if they could do the production at 29th Street Rep. And Wilson Milam, the original director, they hired Wilson to come to New York and direct that production, a terrific production. Mm -hmm. As it turned out in sort of the history of uh, Killer Joe – kind of a, a standalone production in that that production didn't go elsewhere Wa- that production happened sort of during the arc of of our play's long travels hmm.
0: and and Wilson was the only common denominator because yes. it was a completely separate company
1: yes hmm. at that point that company 29th street rep brought in uh, an independent producer to help them with some of the costs a fellow named Darren Lee Cole and Darren would be Darren would then sort of rejoin us and the original production in London and then help bring elements of that original production back to a commercial run at the Soho Playhouse in 98.
0: Yeah, that's what's so interesting is to have had the show produced in New York in 94. Right. I don't know how long it ran. I, you know, I didn't see it. think what, it ran you know,
1: for a while for them. Yeah. I mean, it got good reviews and ran for a while and was there a – feather in their cap as well as mine. D- David has been mad at me ever since for feeling like I haven't given them enough credit for, for what they did and mm-hmm. uh, um, perhaps I deserve that. I don't know. I, I, you, you got to realize that when you're a, a playwright... It, it's that original production that you sort of get on board with right and, and that was my experience. I had very little experience of that 29th street rep production. I, I came and I saw it and uh, I gave Wilson some notes on it and they were nice people. I liked them a lot. but in that experience for me, it sort of stood alone. although it was my first New York production, there's no doubt.
0: Hmm. So to, to someone not here having heard this whole tale, it, you, it was almost as if you had a revival. Four years after the original production right. of right. the piece in New York, but as you say, there was there was this continuing arc of the main production, right. and this was this was an offshoot. Right. One thing that struck me, and I have to confess, I'd not seen the early plays, so I sat down to read them um, before doing this interview. And one of the things that struck me about Killer Joe. Certainly people talk about the violence of the piece and some have suggested misogyny, you know, was some of what delayed it getting on in Chicago early on. What struck me about it was how difficult it must be to write a play about inarticulate people, people who have somewhat limited ways of expressing themselves. Um, And I'm just just wondering, was that – because you decided who they were or was that because it was your first – your first stab really at a
1: play and you were keeping it simple? I don't, you know, it's always actually been one of the things I'm kind of getting at in my plays. The people in my plays don't tend to be very articulate. They don't uh, tend to be very good at expressing themselves. They express themselves Poorly. They attempt to express themselves, but express themselves poorly. It, it, that's always been th- that, if anything, is the kind of through line for me of the plays. I don't know why that's an interest of mine. Maybe I feel I don't express myself very well. I don't know where that comes from in my own psychology. But it's always been an interest of mine. Uh, as an actor, I've done a wide variety of plays. And in some of them, uh, of course, the characters are brilliant at expressing themselves. They express themselves better than human beings ever could hope to. And that's good, too. I think it's, I think, uh, I think it's important for an audience to be able to sit there and say, yes, that person is putting into language what, what I wish I could put into language. As opposed to the experience of my plays... Where I think I – think, I hope that the audience is sitting there saying, I think I know what that person is trying to say and I understand – I empathize with the frustration and in their inability to say it quite right, to truly mm. express themselves. So yeah, that was part of the challenge of Killer Joe. I mean my god. Well, I remember one of the actors in the original rehearsals for that play saying, this thing has got a vocabulary of 500 words. You've somehow written a play with only 500 words in it. I don't know how you've done it. It's, uh, I, I remember the first time somebody – I had encouraged the actors as, as, as we do because it was their home. I had encouraged them to, to uh, bring their own – to personalize the home for themselves. One person brought books on the set and I said, these people don't read books. If they read books, they would be better at expressing themselves. But there are no books out here. There may be a few comic books but that's about it. Uh, but yeah, you're you're you could pick up on that because I think that is part of the uh, part of my reason for writing. Hmm. So the next play, Bug, premiered in London. Well, we had gone to London with that production of Killer Joe, and we became friends. Well, we became friends with a lot of people, but we became friends with uh, the Gate Theatre in Notting Hill, a small another small theater, and they yeah. said why don't you guys bring another show over? You guys, meaning the five actors and director and myself. We didn't really have another play, although I had started sort of noodling with Bug a little bit. And so I liked having the deadline. And I said, okay, we're going to bring you my new play. And so Bug was written uh, with very specific actors in mind to play the five roles. And, uh, yeah, we took it over in June of uh, what – No, I can't remember the month.
0: Well, it opened in September of 96.
1: September of 96. There you go.
0: Hmm. Your plays are very American. They're set in American settings. They use very American language, as we were just talking about. How did the English respond to it? Do they – Do they have an equivalent for it or do they look at it as a foreign world they're looking into? Not that either the experience of Bug or Killer Joe is very common, hopefully, to many Americans. That's a
1: good question because Killer Joe was kind of a a bomb going off in in England. Uh, It was a big deal in the theater community over there and it – It was part of, and I won't say it was the start of, but it was part of a little mini movement over there in the mid-90s in which Martin McDonough, Jez Butterworth, Sarah Kane, Mark Ravenhill, uh, a number of these writers, uh, uh, and and different people have tried to name this little mini movement. I don't know that it's important enough to even deserve a name, but uh, certainly we were all informed by the same things, and we were uh, we were trying to uh, we were trying to present on stage uh, visceral and galvanizing uh, evenings in the theater. Uh, we were trying to, uh, by any means necessary, by any shock tactics available to us, uh, wake the audience up a little bit. Maybe every generation has some young playwrights who are trying to do that. I don't know. But certainly we had that in common at that time. It's interesting that as you're saying that, I was thinking about the fact that, of course, it was
0: the Ramones going to England, an American band, that started the punk rock movement among the English that then came back to the U.S. Right. So you were the lone American in
1: whatever that movement was in playwriting. Seemed to be at the time. And and Martin and I have become good friends. And we've talked about that any number of times, how that sort of came to pass. And I think it came to pass by accident, the way all those things come to pass. One person saw another person's play and said, oh, I disagree with that. I'm going to write this play. And I'm going to top him with this play. And I I think there was a feeling. uh, All those people, the, the English audiences really embraced Killer Joe, and they really embraced August Osage County when we just took it to the National. Bug, they didn't know what to make of. They didn't know what to make of it. They didn't really embrace it. probably wasn't very good. Probably the original production in England wasn't really good. I don't think it got good until later on. It needed more productions to to season. The first production was troubled.
0: Hmm. In the case of Bug... It ultimately became your first screenplay that was produced. And as defined as the spaces are, both in Killer Joe and Bug, they're set in a room. There's nothing fantastical or necessarily cinematic about them, but they're certainly realistic, as absurd or extreme as they may be. In translating Bug for the screen, do you feel that... You were able to to be successful in in using that medium,
1: or did it did it change the play? Uh, well, it or certainly it? changed the play. I mean, the the, the movie and the play uh, are very different experiences. I, I have to say, I like the movie. I've always liked the movie. I, I and well, I, I'll tell you this: from the first uh, productions of Killer Joe, the first productions of Bug, as well as August Osage County. People have always uh, said to me, boy, that would make a great movie. And I thought, no, it wouldn't. Why would it make a great movie? I realized that what they thought, the reason that other people thought it would make a great movie is because they were contemporary, uh, they contained nudity and or violence and or language and or other R-rated elements, uh, and they held people's attention primarily. That would make a good movie because it holds my attention. Hmm. Uh, The fact of the matter is they are set in single sets and movies typically aren't. Good movies uh, rarely are set on single sets. Uh, William Friedkin called me. He had seen the play in New York. He'd seen Bug in New York. He asked me to uh, come and meet with him and talk to him and he said, I love the play. I want to make a movie uh, based on the play. I don't want you to think that you have to reinvent it. First, do no harm, he hmm. said to me. I loved uh, what you did, in, what you were able to do in that motel room. If you feel that you need to take it out of the motel room, take it out. If you don't, then don't, and make it my problem. So that's what I did, and it's it hews pretty closely to, to the play. What it means is that there are a few long scenes of people talking to each other, and that's not considered very cinematic I happen to like it and there are moments late in that movie where I'm sitting there watching and I think geez, I've never really seen this in a movie before so uh, I think it has value for that reason if nothing else mm-hmm. uh, also to record a couple of very good performances a- and Michael Shannon's performance who uh, he had begun the the play in its early when he was 18 years old in its first production so to be able to put that on film also had value mm-hmm. like I say I like the movie I'm, I'm prejudiced At the time at which you were invited
0: to join Steppenwolf as a company member, um, were they inviting you in as a playwright or were they inviting you as an actor or were they inviting you in as both? Both. Both. So so was Man from Nebraska specifically, now you're a member of the company, give us
1: a play? Yes. It was and I did. And that was the – I mean there had been a period of, I don't know, what, seven years between. Six years anyway between Bug and Man from Nebraska. Uh, I didn't have anything to say in that six years. But that was during that difficult time after losing my partner. That was during this time of trying to get work in Los Angeles. And I, I really didn't feel I had anything to say. I didn't have anything to offer. I, uh, I never considered myself blocked during that time. I never uh, worried myself over it. Uh, When I had another play to write, I wrote it. And it seems you'd moved beyond shock. Yeah. uh, My interest was in something else. For one thing, i had seen a very bad play here in New York with a friend of mine that was set in many different locations. Scene one, an airport. Scene two, a restaurant, whatever. And uh, we walked out of the theater, and I just immediately started cursing this terrible play and saying, well, anybody can do that, and that's just a screenplay. And my friend said gee, I don't know. Sometimes I like those plays. And it was such a (laughs) defeating argument. It was hard to argue against, yes, simply liking them. And I realized, oh, sometimes I just like them too. And so I – part of the formal exercise for me was writing a play with uh, a lot of different scenes, a lot of different locations. Hmm. But certainly thematically, the subject matter was – Was different than the earlier two plays.
0: Radically, because it's a play about a man who has a perfectly average life. Um, He's an insurance salesman and suddenly has some kind of spiritual epiphany and even he doesn't know what it is. As as you say, if if the commonality is people can't always find words for it, something's happened to him, but he doesn't understand what it is. Right.
1: Uh, You know, I said earlier that there is no plan to my work. And if there ever was a plan, there might have been one going into Man from Nebraska in that. Both Killer Joe and Bug were consciously uh, written as working class pieces. They were meant to uh, speak about the working class. And I, at the time... uh, as a broke-ass actor, as I described myself, I identified with the working class, and they were meant to be performed for the working class. And I had run into real frustration with Killer Joe and Bug in that those it, it's hard to find that audience for theater. Uh, the theater is primarily a middle-class pursuit. And so Man from Nebraska was conscious to the degree that I said I'm not going to frustrate myself like that again I'm going to write specifically for the people sitting in my theater Mm -hmm. at the time Steppenwolf at that point Mm
0: -hmm. interesting then Osage County which as we've already talked about became such, such a success and yet in this period the acting continued you said they're on parallel tracks does does the acting – is your mind clear enough when you're working on performing a character to be able to create other characters?
1: Or do you have to separate when I, you're doing one or the other? When I'm doing one or the other, I, can't, I don't really tend to write a lot while I'm in a show. Uh, and I have been very fortunate at Steppenwolf in that I've just been steeped in the theater, the, the world of the theater, the culture of our theater. I've been steeped in it for a number of years now. And with Amy Morton, the actress who played Barbara in August, Osage County, she has directed me now in Glengarry Glen Ross, uh, Norman in The Dresser, George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, Topolsky in The Pillow Man, and now, coming up, teach in American Buffalo. So, I've gotten a chance to visit these great characters with a great director and a great actors director in mm-hmm. Amy. Uh, that stuff uh, informs the writing a tremendous amount. I'm a uh, there's no doubt I'm a better writer because I've played George in Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it it's one thing to uh, I've known that play my whole life. I've I've my father used to teach it. I remember uh, as, as a youngster interested in movies in the theater, sitting in my bedroom in my small town in Oklahoma and reading it aloud, acting out, the par- acting out George, hmm. my little 15-year-old Okie George. And I know the movie. I've seen other productions of it. But to actually be able to inhabit that character eight times a week uh, teaches you the play in a way that I, I don't think there's any other way to learn it. And... Uh, in a very practical way that I can then uh, put into practice in the plays that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. So they, I, in many ways, I almost wish – in many ways, the acting life is a lot harder than the writing life. Uh, the grind, once you get a show open, the eight-show-a-week grind – is tough and whoever the guy was who agreed to eight shows a week i'd like to have a talk with him because it's too many uh, that grind is really hard as a playwright it's all very hard and the pressure is all on you but once it's open you get to walk away and you have your nights free so there are things about writing that i certainly prefer to acting but uh When you're acting, you're in direct communication with that audience eight times a week. You understand the way an audience functions. You understand the way the playwright is using you as a vehicle to talk to the audience. It's just a lot of important information that winds up feeding back into the writer. And then I think also as the writer, it feeds back into the actor as well. Because I see, as a writer, actors getting in their own way a lot busying themselves up with fussing with stuff they don't need to be fussing with and so I hope that when I get a chance to get up there as an actor I'm able to take the, short, the shortcut hmm. uh, through some of that I read a
0: comment from your mom that she always wanted to write a memoir but that you stole it from her with Osage County how much of that play is literally from the family stories and how much is, is what you wove them into
1: I, uh, without intending to dissemble, uh, I've, I don't know that I've ever given the really complete answer to that question because I remember going into rehearsal with the play and saying to the actors, this is based on my family, my experiences, but this is not, uh, autobiographical. And yet, the more we did the play, the more we would rehearse the play, and they would do a little moment, and they said, say, well, what's this about? And I said, well, that actually happened. Well, it actually, she did actually say that. Well, that moment actually, even some of what people have termed the melodramatic moments of the play are actually straight from life. So what percentage? Actually, a pretty high percentage comes mm-hmm. from life. Not from my nuclear family as much as my extended family.
0: Coming back round now to Superior Donuts, since we've touched several times on this topic of characters who are inarticulate, it strikes me that in Superior Donuts, you have one character who is hyper-articulate and a second character who you've allowed to step out of himself and be articulate but only in direct address. Right. Was there a conscious shift for you in wanting to now work with people who overexpressed themselves?
1: Well, I think with August, you know, one of the things I allowed myself to do, part of the exercise with August would always be I would let a scene play out as long as you might let it play out. Uh, I don't know. We have a kind of internal clock, a a kind of theatrical rhythm that teaches us how long a scene is. Uh, I would – write that scene, and then I would keep writing. I would write that scene plus about 30%. And then I would go back and start cutting into the scene. But I tried to let each scene sort of play, let people sort of overtalk everything before cutting into it, as opposed to me cutting them off too early. Mm-hmm. So August was another exploration of that same idea. Donuts was an exploration of the idea that if we have a guy who's so nonverbal that nobody knows what the hell he's about. He has n- no gift for communicating his wants, his desires, his disappointments, that the only way then to find out what's going on with him through these direct address monologues. So that became kind of the formal exercise for me there in the play. The, there are two stories being told at the same time. The, the social side of uh, the man and he can't uh, reveal anything, Uh, the private side of the man in which he reveals everything, in which he reveals his internal monologue. And that that one affected the other, that both tracks affected the other. That was the formal exercise going into Superior Donuts, definitely.
0: Hmm. And then the young man who seems
1: articulate beyond his years. Articulate beyond his years and yet also as a way of hiding the things he doesn't really want you to know. I mean Mm -hmm. what I've often found is that people who talk a lot are actually sort of trying to distract you from the things they're unable to say.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, congratulations on – All of your successes and I can say I look forward to whatever you choose to write next and I look forward to seeing you in American Buffalo when you bring it to the East Coast uh, in early 2010. Thank you very much, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhardt. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.